The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening, everyone. My name is Daniel Bowling, and we're going to start a little differently tonight. I'm going to talk for a few moments to introduce this series on the Satipatthana Sutta and then do a guided meditation actually using the words of the sutta. In my study of this sutta and other suttas, one of the things that I've observed is that the words of the Buddha, as handed down over the centuries, are actually guidance for our experiential learning, not just something that we read and study from an academic perspective or even from an intellectual perspective, but they have experiential impact. And one way to get that experiential impact is to experience the sutta as a meditative practice. So, tonight we're going to do a little overview of the Satipatthana Sutta. You might know that there are four uh, talks that will be given. This is the first one over the next four Thursdays. So I'm going to do just a little overview of the Sutta and then have a guided meditation because the focus of tonight's talk is the first part of the Sutta. One way to translate in English the name of the sutta is to call it the, it's often called the four foundations of mindfulness. I like to call it the four abidings of mindfulness. A foundation uh, implies some sort of support or causal relationship with an object, and an abiding implies my attitude towards what's happening. It's a place from which I come. The Buddha described the sutta in this way in the introduction. Students, he of course called it, called everybody monks because that's who everybody was 2,500 years ago, but now we're students. So I'll use that phrase. Students, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha, which is a Pali word meaning suffering or unsatisfactoriness, and discontent, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for, for the realization of nibbana or enlightenment, namely the four satipatthanas. So notice that first line, the direct path for the purification of beings. He wasn't messing around with this one. This is the heart of his teachings. The next phrase is called a definition. He says, what are those four, those four satipatthanas? Here, students, in regard to the body, a student abides contemplating the body. Diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful. Free from desires and discontent in the world. 
That's number one. In regard to feelings, she abides contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. Number three, in regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Four, in regard to the dhammas, which is a Pali word for dharma, in, in, in regard to dhammas, she abides contemplating dhammas, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. You will notice the repetitious phrasing. These were designed so that people could memorize them and repeat them over and over again in their meditation practice as a way to build their practice. And it was also done that way, interestingly enough, for our modern time, because even though there was written word when the Buddha first taught 25 or 2600 years ago, it wasn't trusted. What was trusted was the oral tradition, because perhaps a group of monks or nuns like ourselves would be assigned to memorize this particular sutta. So there would be about 30 of us memorizing this one sutta. And if I missed a word or two, y'all would remember what those words were. So we had a collective memory that was considered to be much more reliable than the written word. That's why there's so much repetitious phrasing. In Buddhist practice, there's essentially a bifurcated meditation approach. In the Buddhist time, a practice of meditation was very widespread and very well known, and it was essentially a concentration practice, a one-pointed focus on an object to the exclusion of all other experience. It was called shamatha, or samadhi meditation, and that was practiced by almost all yogis around in the valley of northern India where the Buddha lived and practiced. The Buddha distinguished a second aspect of meditation, which we know today as insight or vipassana meditation. And the distinction between samadhi concentration and vipassana insight is that the object in vipassana is whatever arises in my experience. It's not a one-pointed, single focus on a certain object. It's whatever arises, and from that broader, more open, expansive process, I develop insight. I develop a deeper understanding into the ways of the world, into the origins of my suffering, into the origins of my own dissatisfaction with life, into the origins of the constant changing nature of reality, the impermanence, and into the origins of myself, the absence of self in all phenomena. 
So this new style of meditation was the Buddha's genius addition to the spiritual path. Like most of the things he taught, he didn't throw away the first part, and that's the beginning part of the Satipatthana Sutta. Essentially, we can divide this sutta or this practice into three. There's the process of meditation, which he teaches us in great detail. There's the object that I'm focusing on, either a single one-pointed object or a more expansive object. And there are the qualities that I bring as the meditator to my practice. So you'll notice in this definition that I just read, the process that he describes is talked first focusing on the body, then on the feelings, then on the mind states, and then on understanding those mind states, understanding the way the world works. The object would be those different practices that he outlines in detail in the sutta. And then the qualities of the practitioner would be diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in the world. That's how we abide. So, with that little brief introduction to give you an idea of how the Satipatthana Sutta is constructed and the distinctions that we're going to focus on, now we're going to do our normal 30-minute sit. And this will not be a silent meditation. It will be one where I actually guide you using the words of the sutta. I will modify them a little bit, but not very much. And so I invite you to really focus on the Buddha's words as instructions for your practice. Okay? So allow your eyes to close. And take a couple of deep, full breaths to relax your body. Inhaling. And let it out with a sound. Roll your shoulders around. Mine are almost always tight at this time of the day. And your jaw, maybe let your jaw drop and wiggle your lower jaw from side to side. Stretching your jaw a little bit. Scrooch up your face into a real tight prune face. And sigh it open. Stretching your face and your shoulders. And how, students, does she, in regard to the body, abide contemplating the body? Here, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree. And here we are sitting 
on a chair or on a cushion in our meditation hall. She sits down, having folded her legs crosswise or planting your feet on the floor in front of you. Her body erect, establishing mindfulness in front of her. Establishing mindfulness in front, in the beginning. The intention to be mindful, to be present. Mindful, she breathes in. Mindful, she breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, She knows, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, she knows. I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. Training the mind, I breathe in experiencing my whole body. I breathe out, experiencing my whole body.
She trains thus. I shall breathe out. I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation. She trains thus. I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. So breathing in, we calm the bodily formation. And breathing out, we calm the bodily formation. In this way, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body internally or he abides contemplating the body externally or he abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. So as we focus on breathing in long or breathing out long, breathing in short or out short, breathing in experiencing the whole body, breathing out experiencing the whole body, breathing in calming our body, breathing out calming our body, we experience this, contemplate it internally, sometimes externally, sometimes both internally and externally. She abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body or she abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body or she abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Thoughts, sensations, our breath. In this Satipatthana, the focus is on the breath. So our breath arises, it passes away. And it both arises and passes away. We experience our whole body through the breath, both arising and passing away.
mindfulness that there is a body is established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body. Again, students, he reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, enclosed by skin. As full of many kinds of impurities, thus, In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, stomach, In this way, by being mindful of each part of the body, from the soles of our feet to the top of our head and back down again, from our internal organs and the content of the body, the blood, the food we've eaten, our fingernails, our skin, our skeleton, eyes, ears. In all of these ways, in regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body internally or contemplating the body externally or she abides contemplating the body both internally and externally.
He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body. Our weight changes. Our hair grows long. Our nails grow long. Or she abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. Our weight diminishes. We cut our hair. We cut our nails. We eliminate from our body. Our skin sloughs off. Or we abide contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body. Again, students, she reviews this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements, thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the solid parts of our body, the water element, the liquid parts of our body, 
the fire element, the temperature parts of our body, and the air element, the movement parts of our body. Again, students, she reviews this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements. Thus, in this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. In this way, contemplating the elements of the body, the constituents that make it up. In regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body internally, or she abides contemplating the body externally, or she abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, how the earth element, the air element, the water element, and the fire element arise, how those elements pass away, and contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body.
This is from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. Breath, you invisible poem. Pure, continuous exchange with all that is. Flow and counterflow where rhythmically I come to be. Breath, you invisible poem. Pure, continuous exchange with all that is. Flow and counterflow where rhythmically I come to be. Each time, a wave that occurs just once in a sea, I discover I am. You, innermost of oceans. You, infinitude of space. How many far places were once within me? Some winds are like my own child. When I breathe them again, do they know me again? Air, you silken surround, completion and seed of my words. So what was it like for you, that guided experience of the first, of, of actually part of the first satipatthana, the first mindful abiding? Anyone, just a word or a phrase or some experience that you noticed? Clearly it carried you deep into yourself, so (laughs) don't everyone speak at once. Yes. I think it's much better uh, the instruction you gave than some of the stuff you get, you know, about, uh, you know, remembering or planning. And it's uh, it's good to hear the direct uh, language from the Buddha. It, it you know, seems authentic and uh, something you can trust. I had a question, though. Uh, would you say while you're meditating and contemplating the body when sounds arise that you consider that a... Uh, something arising within the body. What do you think? Well, I think yes, uh, because, you know, we're hearing is, uh, we wouldn't hear without a body, so I would say that's an experience of the body. Yes. And when I uh, think about the refrain, which I read several times, because in the sutta it follows each of the different groups of instructions that the Buddha gave us, So it's in the sutta 13 times. That seems like it's probably pretty important if the Buddha repeated it 13 times. And he says, contemplating the body internally, contemplating the body externally, and both internally and externally. So I would agree with your observation. Matches my experience. Thanks. Anybody else? Question or comment? What was it like for you to hear the words of the Buddha as you sat? Okay. I see that you're here to hear me talk. So I'll do my part 
but I encourage you to interrupt me, hold up your hand, ask a question at any time. We, it's fine with me for this to be a conversation. So the word sati patana, sati is mindfulness or awareness. And upasa means placing near. So sati patana is that which I place near and I'm aware of, I'm mindful of. So the Buddha give, gave us this long, as you saw, as you heard, quite detailed instruction to be aware of all that arises in this first satipatthana in our bodies, in the experience of our bodies. What we experience near. As a mental quality, sati represents a deliberative cultivation of the receptive awareness of perception. So I perceive you and I can perceive you automatically. I can perceive you based on my past experience of you. I can perceive you based on my past experience of someone that reminds me of you. I can receive you based on my perception because I'm depressed, because I'm elated, because I just ate something that didn't agree with me, because I didn't sleep well last night, because I'm worried about the election or the stock market or my job or my mortgage. All of those can affect my perception of you. Or, I can perceive you with bare and equanimous receptivity, combined with a broad and open state of mind. And the latter is the practice of sati, of mindfulness. I perceive you with bare and equanimous receptivity, with a broad and open state of mind. The whole process of mindfulness, of sati, as a meditative practice, is to train our minds to shift from our automatic, evaluative, reactive state to this broad, open, equanimous, receptive state. In that way, we begin to see, I begin to see you as you are not the layers that I put on you by my distortions, not by my moods, not by my fears and my upsets and my worries. I see you as you are. And I see the world around me as it is. You notice that I read over and over from the refrain, Mindfulness that there is a body is established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. Just as it is. And continuous mindfulness. 
not clinging to anything in the world, not clinging to my perceptions, not clinging, clinging to what arises and what passes away, but simply as it is. There's an old Zen story of two monks, an older monk and a younger monk, who were on a long journey and, and they were walking along the path and they came to a stream that was a rushing, raging stream. And there was a beautiful young woman standing beside the stream on their side of the stream, afraid to venture out to try to ford the stream. It was springtime, so the stream was running much higher with water. And the old monk, without a word, picked her up and put her on his back and walked out into the stream and carried her across the stream. The young monk followed. When they got to the other side, the old monk put the young woman down and they continued on their way. Hours and miles later, the young monk said, I can't believe you picked that woman up. You know that it's against all of our vows. We can't even look at a woman, let alone touch her. How could you do that? And the old monk replied, Are you still carrying her? I put her down hours ago. It is so hard for us to let go of our reactivity, to let go of our perception and see something just as it is. This non-reactive, watchful, receptive quality is the middle path that the Buddha created. We don't repress an experience to try to make it go away. And we don't compulsively to re- react to an experience. We train ourselves to see it just as it is and to see that experiences arise. And if we don't cling to them, and even when we do cling to them, they pass away. So it's that open, receptive quality of just seeing things as they are. That's sati. In this way, we turn the obstacles that arise during our meditation into meditation objects. Just as this gentleman in the red shirt, your name was? Is Michael. Just as Michael observed with a sound. I can be sitting, and I remember when I had just started meditating 30-some years ago. If there, were no, if there was noise, no meditation was happening over here because I was reacting to the noise. I was getting up from my meditation cushion and trying to fix the noise so that it wouldn't happen, so that I could have quiet. I needed to have quiet to sit. What the Buddha teaches is that that sound becomes the object of our meditation instead of a hindrance to the meditation. Because of this receptive, open, non-evaluative, non-reactive quality of sati. I used to spend the summers in Pickens County, South Carolina, a place that I'm sure many of you have been (laughs) and uh, are quite familiar with. It's in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And I stayed with my grandmother, and she lived next door to her father, my great-grandfather, who was a 
basically a tobacco farmer. She made her living sewing, making, she was a dressmaker. And she had an old pedal singer sewing machine that she pumped with both of her feet and she spun the wheel and she sewed really fast. And her concentration was incredible because she worked so hard to support herself in that way. So she had tremendous concentration. That first basic samadhi, samantha part of meditation, that pre-existed Buddha's distinction of vipassana or insight meditation. She had great concentration ability, but it was not trained into a reactive, open, accepting quality. I knew that because she had eyes in the back of her head and if I did something she didn't like, like try to sneak into the closet and get my BB gun and go shoot birds, she would see it, even though she wasn't looking in that direction. It was definitely not a non-reactive quality. So these four Satipatthanas, these four sort of chapters of the sutta, have a progression to them. As I train myself to experience my body and the different aspects of my body, which we'll get into in just a moment or two, then I begin to wonder, why is it that there is suffering in my body? Why is it that I get uncomfortable? Why is it that I react to things? And I see, oh, it's because of feelings. I have pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings about certain objects that I see or experience. Aha! So I move from just contemplating my body and the aspects of my body to contemplating those feelings that arise in reaction to certain experiences. And the feelings are only possible that there are three. I like something, I dislike something, or I'm neutral about it. That's the talk that uh, someone, I forget who it is, will give next week. That's the second Satipatthana on feelings. And then as I explore those feelings in my practice, I begin, what begins to arise is, who is it that's feeling? Who is it that's experiencing these feelings? So I'm drawn to the mental states, the various kinds of mental states. And that's the third Satipatthana. The fourth as I begin to explore the positive mental states that arise, the negative mental states that arise, I begin to wonder what causes those mental states? Where do those mental states arise from? And that's what the Buddha called the Dhamma or the Dharma. The aspects of life the teachings of life that are deeply fundamental to the way life works. An example is the Four Noble Truths, the hindrances, 
sloth and topper and restlessness, etc. Those are the dhammas that I begin to contemplate. And that's the fourth satipatthana. That will be the talk, I guess, three weeks from now. But tonight we're just focused on the first, mindfulness of the body. And the Buddha actually broke down the experience of the body into six different aspects. The first and most basic, of course, is the breath. And practicing observing a long breath, inhale, a long exhale, a short inhale, a short exhale, is a basic concentration, one-pointedness, meditative practice. We expand it a little bit by experiencing our whole body. As I breathe, we can actually feel the whole body. Maybe you noticed that when you were sitting and I was doing that guided meditation. Another way that phrase is interpreted is that we experience the whole body of the breath. You've heard meditation teachers perhaps give you the instruction of notice when the breath begins, notice the middle of the breath, and notice the breath as it falls away. So one way that, another way that particular phrase is interpreted is I experience the whole body of the breath. So I can experience my whole body. I feel the breath throughout the entire body. I feel it expanding my chest and my body. I feel it down into my legs and my arms and my head. Or I experience the whole body of the breath. Which is right and which is wrong. Some meditation teachers will say it's only this way. Others will say it's only that way. I'm sure that the Buddha would say that they're both skillful means. If, for example, I'm feeling very tight and tense, experiencing my whole body breathing relaxes me. And I open up and I feel the breath throughout my whole body. On the other hand, if I'm feeling really sleepy and I'm just kind of doing one of these numbers where I'm jerking, concentrating hard on the whole body of the breath itself, noticing when the breath begins, the middle of it, and when it passes away, will have me be more alert and awake and more focused. So there's the breath. And then there's the postures of the body. There are other things. I'm sorry, I want to go. I want to stay with the breath for a moment. Remember when I read that we establish mindfulness in front in the very beginning at the gate. Our whole meditation practice is there. Do we just sort of come in and squirm around a little bit and then sit and our mind is all over the place and it takes a while for it to settle down? That's certainly mostly my experience. However, it makes a difference if I establish the intention 
I dedicate my practice to my own awakening and to the awakening of all beings. And I call myself to a higher purpose. I'm not just sitting to meditate. I have a higher purpose with that meditation. And I bring myself immediately to mindfulness. Will my mind be scattered still? Absolutely. And it'll take a while for it to settle down. But I have begun, and in the beginning, is everything. You notice also that I read about knowing the breath. I know the breath. As I breathe in long, I know I breathe in long. As I breathe out long, I know I breathe out long. We can passively receive the breath and know that I've breathed in long or breathed out long. Or we can actively reach out and grab the breath. And again, either one of those are skillful depending upon the circumstances. If I'm really striving and over-efforting and I'm creating a lot of in, uh, tension in myself because I'm trying so hard to be a good meditator. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience, but personally I have that experience quite a bit. That's a time to relax and passively receive the breath. Just watch it. Try to let go and not control the breath, but let the breath arise and notice that it arises and passes on its own. If, on the other hand, I'm sleepy and slothful and I'm nodding off, that's a time to be more focused on moving the breath, long and short. The second section of this part of the sutta is the four postures. I didn't read that part of the sutta to you tonight in the guided meditation, but it reads like this. Again, students, when walking, she knows I am walking. When standing, she knows I am standing. When sitting, he knows I am sitting. When lying down, he knows I am lying down. Or she knows accordingly, however her body is disposed. What this points to for me is that mindfulness practice is not just a sitting practice. It's certainly possible to meditate standing up. It's possible to meditate lying down, although for me that's always a bit on the dangerous side. I have a very deep, mindful sleep, usually. <laughs> and, as we know, those of us who have been on retreat, it's possible to meditate walking in all the four postures. But expand that a little bit. How many of you have the experience of getting into a supermarket line and always seeming to get into the line that's moving the slowest? or into a toll booth line when you're driving and get in the one where the person five cars ahead of you drops their money out onto the, si onto the side and gets out or doesn't have any money or something of that sort. That's a time when mindfulness 
often comes to my rescue. We have a choice then. We can wait. And with waiting for me comes frustration and agitation and anger sometimes at the slowness of the person in front of me. Or I can be mindful and practice in that moment with my eyes open, with my awareness of all that's around me. Practice. Another aspect of the postures is how many of you have had the experience of not being aware of the posture of your body. Like, for example, right now. Were you aware, until I called your attention to it, of the posture of your body? The tightness of your shoulders, perhaps. Tension. So, mindfulness of the postures is not just which of the four postures I'm in, sitting, lying down, standing, or walking. It's also how my body is disposed in each of those postures. When I'm engaged in a, let's say Michael and I are friends and we're going for a walk and we're having a talk about something and it's a talk that starts to upset me. If you're like me, sometimes when I'm upset, in fact, most of the time when I'm upset, I lose awareness of my body. I go right into my head. And the more I stay in my head, the less I'm in my body, the greater the odds. Remember, I'm a, my specialty is conflict resolution and mediation. I can assure you I see this every day. The greater the odds that I will get really upset with Michael and have an argument with him. If, on the other hand, I practice these simple words of the Buddha, when walking, he knows I am walking. When standing, he knows I am standing. He knows accordingly, however his body is disposed. So in the midst of walking with Michael and talking about this upsetting thing, if I can become mindful of my body and then mindful of my breathing and then mindful of my the length of my breath and then perhaps even mindful of experiencing my whole body breathing, the odds that I will stay present with Michael in my heart instead of getting lost in my head go up enormously because I have brought mindfulness into my posture, into that moment. So you see that this Satipatthana Sutta, the detailed instructions the Buddha gave us, while they're applicable definitely to our sitting meditative experience, they're applicable all the time. That's why the refrain says, Mindfulness that there is a body is established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. The bare knowledge is that I'm just aware of whatever the object is as best I can, not putting my labels and perceptions and concepts on it. And continuous mindfulness. 
Now, in a retreat setting, it's certainly a lot easier, as those of you who have been on a retreat, to begin to build up more continuity in my mindfulness. But I endeavor every day when I notice that I've gone off somewhere in my head or when I'm getting upset about something to come right back, finding my breath, finding my body, being aware of my posture, being aware of how my body's disposed, experiencing the breath throughout my body. And that brings me right here. So these teachings are very pertinent all the time. The next aspect of the body is the bodily activities. I didn't read this little paragraph either while we were meditating. But it goes like this. Again, students, when going forward and returning, she acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending her limbs, she acts clearly knowing. When wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, he acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, she acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, he acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent, he acts clearly knowing. So every activity is included. Every possible activity. We bring our mindfulness. And we can practice our mindfulness. And when we do, we stay more present. And the breath always helps as the foundation. It's the way back into mindfulness for me. When I find that I'm lost, when I'm upset, when my mind is wandered off, It's as if I go back through the construction of this sutta. It is designed in such an extraordinary way to mimic natural human behavior. Starting with the breath. Starting with awareness of the length and the quality of the breath. Feeling the breath through the entire body. Noticing my posture. Noticing what I'm doing. What are the activities I'm doing? being aware of them. All of that becomes our mindfulness practice. And then we get even more detailed. We experience the anatomical parts of the body. And I did read most of this part, although it gets into the, uh, shall we say, the more disgusting parts of our body. And I skipped over that. I figured that might be uh, a little shocking in the midst of sitting. But it's all stuff that we experience. I did read the part about from the soles of our feet to the top of our hair and experience in our skin, the many kinds of impurities, the head hairs, the body hairs, the nails, the teeth, the skin. All of these parts of our body. One of the things that comes from that detailed look at our body is that we notice that it, our body is arising and passing away. And when you get to be 
65 like I am, you notice that even more. And so our attachment to our body begins to lessen and we become more accepting of our body the way it is. And as I become more accepting of my body the way it is, I become more accepting of you and your body the way you are. That's the way the practice unfolds. Then I read the part about the four elements. We think about our body as part of the elements, as part of the earth. It's solid. It's liquid. It has temperature. We're hot and we're cold. There's movement that we experience internally and externally. So all of these aspects of the body can be part of our mindfulness experience. And finally, the last part that the Buddha parted to us is focusing on the corpse in decay. At the time the Buddha taught, it was typical that bodies were left out on platforms. And then they went through the uh, cremation process. About 30 years ago, I went to India and I had read and studied this aspect of Buddhist teaching. And I was in the city of Benares, or Venaris as it's sometimes called, where the steps leading down to the Ganges are all along uh, the Ganges in Benares. And they're called ghats. And people walk down the ghats and they get into the water and they bathe, ritual bathing, daily bathing, clothes washing, everything imaginable occurs. And then there are parts of the ghats where there are crematorium and bodies are burned and put on the uh, funeral pyres. And I hired a man to carry me out in an old leaking boat so that I could sit in meditation and do this practice that's in this part of the Satipatthana Sutta and really meditate on the corpse in decay. And I sat there for several days, not continuously through the night, but I would go out in the morning and sit in the boat and for many hours and then come back the next day and do the same thing. It was a deep experience of the arising and passing away of life. It was also a deep experience of the sameness of our human experience. Even though a Southern Baptist preacher's kid like myself, that wasn't the way funerals happened when I grew up in Pickens County, South Carolina, and perhaps not the way you experience them either. But as I looked deeply into it, it was identical. There was the same family gathering. There was the same family upset. There was the same family reverence. There was the same family bringing together around the passing of a loved one. And there was the deep human experience of our life arising and passing away. So the Buddha encouraged us and to train our minds by focusing on the entirety 
of our physical experience as the first foundation of establishing this quality of mindfulness, this open, broad, expansive, equanimous, receptive quality to whatever life experience arises in the moment for us. That's the fundamental purpose of this sutta. So, in the time we have left, questions? Comments? Anything? Except no rotten tomatoes or anything. I, I like this sweater. So yes. It seems like uh, seems like uh, in this meditation, okay. like an ice cream cone. Okay. So it seems like uh, we're mostly focusing on the breath, uh, and we didn't tr- uh, we didn't let it let our mind drift off. But in uh, you know, I've just been learning meditation. It seems like, for example, for being mindful of your thought, you have to realize what's the emotion behind it and sometimes you have to try to figure out what you know we have to be mindful of emotion so it's you let your thought become the center of attention mm-hmm. it just seems like there's a little bit of I'm not exactly sure what's the right way to do that I don't know if there is a right way or not but very nice question yeah. so you're concerned about how this whole process works that you focus on your breath and that helps to build concentration. But then thoughts arise. Do you observe what arises or do you bring up thoughts? Is that what you're asking? Or you just try to like get away from it. and like get Just repress them and try to focus on your breath. Excellent question. Meditation is a developmental process. So what's important in the beginning may be greatly expanded upon as you develop. Have you ever learned, for example, to play a musical instrument? You know, the first time I played the piano, it was one note at a time with one finger. And that's kind of like breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. That's the first step of learning Meditation. Now, the truth for me is that that's not just as I learned more about playing the piano and I learned to play several notes with my fingers at the same time, I still played one note with one finger. So the ability to concentrate on the breath is not something that I move beyond. I just add more and more as my experience grows. As a new meditator, learning to focus on inhale and exhale, inhale and exhale is the foundation. And then as I'm sitting, I notice that my mind has gone to work. You know, I'm thinking about the office. Aha! That's the most important moment 
in all of our meditation, we are so conditioned to negative reactivity to our experience. You do something and I don't like it and I get angry at you. That's the way our minds are conditioned. So when I wake up and my mind has wandered to work, my natural trained reactivity is, Daniel, you can't meditate. That's awful. You're supposed to be focusing on your breath and you're off at work. So I have that angry reactivity. Instead, ah, my mind wandered. I now am aware that my mind wandered. (sighs) Inhale and exhale. I gently return to my breath. As time goes on in your practice, these other aspects of the Satipatthana Sutta will start to arise. I can still stay focused on my breath and experience my body. I can still stay stoked, focused on my breath and experience my body and be aware that I'm feeling resistance or I'm feeling pleasant feelings. I can become aware of several things at once as my practice deepens and my concentration deepens over time. In the beginning, just be focused on your breathing. And as your mind wanders, and as thoughts come, bring it back to your breath. Just work on that for a long time. (laughs) Four or five years. Don't worry about anything else. The rest will come. Great question. Yes, on the back row. Would you just hand the mic back there? You mentioned a few examples of how you bring your practice to your experience at work. Do you, uh, and how do you, if you do, bring it to the other parties? In a mediation, for example? Yes. By my presence. So, for example, I'm, uh, what's your name? Babat. So I'm mediating between Michael and Babat. And they're angry at each other. You know, they're going at it. If I get caught in their emotional state, I'm not present. I'm not mindful. I'm reactive. I'm not open, expansive, equanimous. I've lost my mindfulness, my sati. If I'm sitting there, aware of my breathing, aware of my posture, however I'm sitting. If I'm aware of the thoughts of, geez, Michael is so angry, he's really being a jerk. Abba is being a very sweet man. I really like what he's saying. Michael, on the other hand, geez, no wonder Abba is upset with him. If I'm being judgmental in my mind, I'm not being open, equanimous, mindful. I'm lost in their conflict. I'm having a pleasant perception of you and an unpleasant perception of you. When I'm caught like that, I'm of no use to either of them. 
So coming back to my breath, coming back to an open, expansive, equanimous, non-reactive place to either of them, that's what I can contribute. If I say to them, okay, guys, now take a breath and start focusing on your breathing, they're going to look at me like I'm an idiot because they didn't come to me for meditation instruction. Now, sometimes I have the honor, really, of mediating with people who are into meditation, and I can do that. And it's wonderful when that happens. But mostly, I bring it into the room. And I notice that when I do, it makes a difference. Uh, Yes, Michael. I wondered if all this trouble I caused was because I said who I was going to vote for. I didn't hear you say who you were going to vote for. <laughs> so you're talking about in our imaginary conflict between... It's been as a joke. Yeah. Yes, I got it. I got it. Any other questions? Yes. Chris? Chris is going to be one of your teachers of on the fourth night, Chris, or yeah, the third? The fourth. The fourth. So she has the damas. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering how you understand the instruction of contemplating the parts of the body. Is it by feeling or by visualizing? I, I actually find it quite powerful to visualize because, you know, I'm a head person a lot of the time, and it's quite... It's very hard for me to, to really feel that I am the same stuff as the corpse or the, the bodies I've seen at this body mm-hmm. world exhibit and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's quite powerful to visualize it, mm-hmm. but that's different than feeling yes. it. I just wondered what's your experience. My sense is that we all have, like we're left-handed and right-handed, and we have different... Abilities. Some of us are very athletic. Some of us are very musical. Some of us are more verbal. Some of us are quiet. Some of us are visual. Some of us are kinesthetic. Some of us are auditory. Some of us are more uh, thoughts, thinking. It's incredibly difficult, for example, for me to visualize. And 25 years ago, when I was first meditating, not in a Buddhist way, and people, the meditation teacher would say, visualize, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't visualize anything but just blackness. And so I felt terrible because I couldn't do it. So if you can't visualize, that's just not your strength. You may have a different sense. The other aspect of this that I think is very important is that as our mindfulness deepens, our experience of a phenomenon that's arising is preconceptual. So, I have a concept of Michael. Not ever having met him before, in truth, I don't have a concept of Michael. He's just a man in a red 
sweater that I've never met before. So my concept of Michael, my experience of Michael, I'm sorry, is pre-concept. After I talk to him and, you know, if we went out to dinner, I've suddenly got Michael. I've created him in a conceptual way. We have a concept called a chair. We have a concept called a room. Man, woman, dark-skinned person, light-skinned person, fat person, skinny person. All of those are concepts. Bare knowing is pre-concept. It's just the experience of what I hear, see, taste, touch, feel, or have a thought about. The six sense doors. So in that sense, as I'm sitting deeply in meditation and I experience my internal body, it can be just movement or just sound. It can be all kind of things because it's pre-concept. That's what arises as our concentration deepens in a long retreat, for example. Got time for one last question. Bless you. I think mine was going to be more of a comment. Um, so you were asking what we experienced as you did the guided meditation and my biggest, I had a version, actually, because the minute you said guided meditation, it, it was funny, like my mid-back just started to tighten and my left forearm just started to get hard. And for me, I, I know that that means, oh, fighting. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, so as I was li- trying to listen to what you were saying, at the same time, I was just trying to explore the edges of what that discomfort was like. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because... Everything you're talking about, which is just experiencing something in its bare nature, including our bodies, I mean, it's an important part of working with that unpleasant body sensation. Yes. Which is when I label it as unpleasant, but as soon as I let go of that label of unpleasant, it starts to diminish. Yes. And, I mean, that's that's been a hard concept for me to learn, but I'm just starting to work with that. Yes. As... You'll hear next week, and the, f- the feeling we have about an experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And clearly, in some way, the idea of a guided meditation is unpleasant for you. So immediately, aversion arises. I don't want this. And I can hold on to that. I can cling to that. And I'll stay stuck in it. And when I come back to my breath and I experience my body, my whole body breathing and relax into it, I experience the arising and the passing away. The aversion comes back. It arises. I don't cling to it. It passes away. It comes back. It arises. I don't cling to it. It passes away. And in my experience, if I can be that open and receptive, experiences come and they go. They come and they go. 
my reactivity goes down. My ability to be equanimous in the face of difficult experiences strengthens. That's the purpose of this practice. So let's sit for just a minute and I want to read you one of my favorite Pablo Neruda poems in closing. Keeping quiet. And now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victory with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might erupt this I'm sorry, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves, of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve and you keep quiet. And I will go. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be with you tonight.